0: podcast is brought to you by
1: Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a rubbery! I need you cool. Are you cool? i cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Oh.
0: Get it up, bitch. I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that. And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. mean bastards, you need to hang.
1: You hear me talking, hillbilly boy. I'ma get medieval on your ass. You're the shot this! Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies
0: aren't. That's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks in their faith, It's nothing like starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you've had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service as you rejuvenate your soul in the word of our Lord and Savior. Quentin Tarantino. I'm the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. This month, we will be starting our journey through the good works of Tarantino by going back to where it all began. I'm talking about Reservoir Dogs. In fact, by the time you are hearing this episode, we will be just a few weeks shy of the movie's 30th anniversary debut at the 1992 Sundance Film Festival. But before we dive into all things Reservoir Dogs, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome my special guest, a fellow follower and disciple of the good works of Tarantino. Coming to us all the way from across the pond in Norwich, England. It's Mr. Steve Smith of the Way Past Cool Podcast. Welcome, Mr. Smith, and may Tarantino be with you always.
1: Hello to everybody out there. In internet land, so let's do this.
0: So obviously, those of you who have followed me over from the "Watch This or Die" podcast or the "No One Puts Nick in a Cage" podcast knows that I used to do this with a partner, Mr. Laplante. We'll get into things about that in another episode of why Mr. Laplante and I have kind of had to separate ourselves due to some other things that are going on in our lives. I decided to jump into the world of Tarantino. That being said, Mr. Smith was a huge fan of our past podcast. And I said back then I wanted to bring you on in an episode, and that didn't happen because we ended up uh, putting that on hiatus maybe forever. And so you were the first person I thought of when I was like, you know what? I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm doing Tarantino because no one else out there is doing them. There are no podcasts currently going that have Tarantino as their subject on a weekly, let alone monthly basis. So I said, fuck it. I'm jumping in. We're going in full board, but I want to bring some people on who... I think are cinephiles like myself and may even be Tarantino fans. And you were the first person I thought of. So tell all these listeners who may or may not even be around a little bit about you.
1: Okay. So I do a podcast called the Way Past cool podcast, which is basically trashy, obscure rock and roll mixed with like B movie trailers and offensive movie dialogue. And I've been doing that for about 10 years. And basically that's what I do every month. Um, you can listen to the shows on mixed cloud and, uh, You can't download them, though, because they're music, and we'll get in trouble with the man. So, yeah. (laughs) The
0: the man man is everywhere.
1: uh, Everywhere. You know, that's that's a whole other story. But, yeah, so that's what I do, and I'm glad to be here. And talking about Reservoir Dogs especially, because it's my favorite Tarantino movie.
0: You're leading us right into some of the questions Um, I had for you. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Just to kind of go with your podcast, any of that inspired by Tarantino? Because everything you just said... Because, you know, while Tarantino is a huge cinephile himself, he's also an audiophile as well. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand that.
1: That's 100% influenced by Tarantino. Because when you used to listen to the, you know, when Reservoir Dogs soundtrack came out, remember, you had the, the kind of bubblegum pop music. Yes. Mi- mi- and you had dialogue from the film. There, yeah? yeah. So my my idea with the Way Past Cool podcast was a Tarantino-esque soundtrack, but instead of, you know, dialogue from his movies... Just random dialogue from all kinds of movies, just things that I thought were funny, and uh, and musically, you know, you'd have some. I played like the surf music that he, you yeah,
0: know. absolutely. That became famous in Pulp Fiction for him.
1: Exactly, yeah. So uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty much hundred percent influenced by that initially, you know. And I've stuck with it. And that's a formula that, you know, just a formula that works, and I enjoy listening to it myself as well. You know, it's like a playlist that I like, and I hope, and I hope others do too. And that's, yeah, been pretty successful,
0: yeah. And you know, it lends itself to, just like his movies did, it lends itself to introducing people to songs that they may not have heard. Like, we're talking about Reservoir Dogs and K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s, like, he really introduces us to great 70s music. Some you've heard, some you have never heard, and some some obscure tracks, too. And then, yeah. as he f- grows down his line, I mean, then he brings in, you know, Morricone and you start to hear his influences as far as orchestral uh, music yeah. goes as well. Exactly. He is a wealth of knowledge in both areas that a lot of people don't understand i think it just exudes from a person who is excited about movies excited about music and he just puts them together and he wants you to fall in love with them just as much
1: exactly and like the music i play you know i don't want to play music in this in your collection i mean I, I don't know ultimately but that's the half the joy for me is to find some crazy rockabilly track you know and Mix that in with some like funk track and then just throw a, ca- a curveball in there, you know, just just mix it up and just, you know, just building a playlist together that goes all over the place. So you don't know what's coming next, which is just like what he does anyway. You know, you yeah, never know. Absolutely. You know, like I mean, without going too far into his like, filmography, but, you know, he might say he's doing a Western you don't
0: know what you're going to get no you don't you, know? you don't no. there's, you know there's uh, in the hateful lady brings in a white stripe song in glorious bastards he brings in david bowie which sounds crazy
1: but you know he's got the skills
0: it fucking works every time in my opinion absolutely
1: absolutely you know, yeah no, he, he hasn't hit a bum, no in that respect
0: uh, not that i not that i say some no, people no. didn't like the uh, the two i just referenced but i think they fit perfectly. I think he is also trying to show that, you know, yes, I know that I'm in a time period. I know we're in the 1940s or the 1800s, and these musicians aren't even alive at these time periods, but that doesn't matter. Like, this music would have fit in these moments, in these time periods, and I'm putting them in here because I think it helps tell the story. Even um, Django Chain, like you said, not to jump, but when they got Rick Ross to do 100 Black Caskets that was written by Jamie Foxx, he wrote that Absolute. whole song, and he records Crazy. it, and it's like, there's a, ra- a hard-edge rap song in the middle yeah. of them riding back to Candyland it's just like, it works, it hits It hits on perfect.
1: Yeah, and he's playing you know, he's playing hillbilly stuff in there you know, and Django Unchained as well and you know, he's just like, you're in good hands you know, just leave him to it He'll pull it together, and he always does.
0: Yes, that's why he's the Lord and Savior. There
1: you go. Exactly. <laughs> I know this whole—I know my whole Amen.
0: way of leading in this is—is uh, is blasphemous. I'm sure I'm going to ch- any strong religious people. I'm definitely chasing away from this podcast because they're going to—they're going to wish the death of me. But that's okay.
1: Uh, all right, don't worry; they'll forgive you.
0: He's the only altar I worship at, anyway. So there
1: you go; they'll forgive you. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. Yeah, they're <laughs> very, very forgiving. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Practice what you preach. Yeah. That's what you tell her.
0: So, what was your entrance into the Tarantino universe like? What was your gateway drug that got you into Quentin Tarantino?
1: Okay, well, I was lucky enough. I saw Reservoir Dogs when it was released in theaters. But before that, there was a TV show on uh, on one of our channels here, and they did a segment on Reservoir Dogs before it came out. Before it was, you know, just as it was coming out, and you know, that was you know, back in the days when. TV gave a shit about art, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So there was something creative on it. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven forbid, you know. Um, just saw this young guy, you know, he was just this young guy, and the way he talked and the way he described things, you know, you're just like, oh, I'm going to check this movie out, you know, crime movie. The difference is, I suppose, we knew Tim Roth was, you know, Tim Roth. Yeah, yeah. He's one of yours. He, he became, this That movie...
0: And then obviously the one piggybacked off with Pulp Fiction a couple years later launched him uh, a career here in America because we had, we had no idea who he fucking was until yeah. he makes his appearance.
1: Yeah, so did I know – I was trying to think about this. Did I really know Harvey Keitel? I mean, I knew taxi driver?
0: Yeah, if you're a fan of the Scorsese movies, if they, you know, if they played big over in England, then maybe, you know, um, yeah, I maybe Bad Lieutenant, what. you know, that kind of stuff yeah, might have hit.
1: Yeah, I don't really know if I really knew Harvey Keitel was or his reputation of who he was, you know. But we did. We knew Tim Roth, and this little segment I saw on the TV show made me like really pricked up my ears and made me think I need to see this movie. And yeah. So it came out, I think it came out in the UK in, in early 93, 1993. Uh, showing my age, I was about 1920 then. So Sorry, like,
0: we're both, I think, in the same age bracket. Yeah, we're, so, we're Gen Xers.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> but, <laughs> thanks fuck for that. Um, yes. So like, yeah, so I'd, I'd have been about 19, when I saw, and I saw it. At, uh, I saw it at cinema then, and, you know, I mean, we, that just was insane, you know. It was just this crazy movie that just seemed to break all the rules, you know. And um, and not a lot of people know this, but Reservoir Dogs was actually banned from home video in the UK for three years. Yeah, they didn't really know what to they didn't really know what to do with it. Yeah, because it wasn't it wasn't excessively it wasn't excessively violent, but the very tone of it just kind of freaked the senses out. And so it's one of those situations where you can't cut anything out. You know, but they just found it to be a hot potato you know kind of like this weird well they were in a situation they were in a <laughs> yeah. situation like what do we do with this you know like there's a lot of films like that really where it uh, is ultimately the tone of the film that they kind of find it projectionable, you know so what happened in the uk was well, what what was leading to was it played in, it played in theatres here we for a couple
0: of years, yeah, it actually did better in the UK than it did in America. It made about two million here, it wasn't big, didn't get a big release as far as you know, even get press for it. It actually landed in the UK. And there was this article I read about where Tarantino was walking in the UK one time and he was getting applauses and people calling his name. And that's when he knew he had struck gold mm, with Reservoir right. Dogs. The UK is the place it landed the biggest. Like, I know, I think I read articles for years, it would you could find it in midnight showings in thea- yeah. theaters over there. Well, Unfortunately, not say,
1: here. Yeah, we've got I was gonna say, we'd we'd do stuff like um, you know, would be so, What are we doing tonight? you know, and it's like do you to going to see Reservoir Dogs again, you know? And you, you know, again, you go, Yeah You know, because you know, we take things for granted you now with streaming and physical media, but I mean, we had, media. we had physical media, but yeah. not, re- not Reservoir. But it's dollars, not the same know.
0: as watching. I, there are films that you can sit down and you can say, you know, I can watch a streaming or on VHS or DVD, and it's going to be fine. Most like comedies, you know, like an yeah. Adam Sandler comedy, like, oh, OK, that's, you know, it's yeah. fun. All right, that's It's going to be,
1: and it's going to be on somewhere. But like I say, the difference with Reservoir, I actually got my, uh, my cousin in Canada, my cousin Karen, she, I said, can you? Rent Reservoir Dogs. And-
0: <laughs> Us Northern Americans, we don't have a whole lot of rules. You know. What I mean? <laughs> yeah, when I it like, comes to <laughs> guns and violence, boy, you can get all of it. Sex, <laughs> yeah. though, we got to we'll push the button
1: on <laughs> yeah. that. I said, so, so I got her to rent Reservoir Dogs and video it for me and send it. So I got a video of it sent from Canada to the UK so I could finally watch it at home. But yeah, I must have gone to see Reservoir Dogs five times into it, you know, because like I say, for a long time, that was the only way you were going to see it. I think a lot
0: of people who either do or don't like Tarantino, because obviously he's like a rock star amongst people. He, in my opinion, is the greatest director, living or dead, in my opinion. Uh, You know, uh, Hitchcock could be up there as well. And I also would put Kubrick in those same parameters. Absolutely. But his movies are events and you go to see them because they are events. They are, you know, when you sit down, you're not sure what you're going to get. but you know it's going to be something that you weren't prepared for the entire time, and you, don't know. you sit there in a theater, you have to sit there and watch him in a theater, you just have yeah. to, you know, it's yeah. one of those, like, I don't know, there's just something about, you know, experiencing it with a bunch of a, a crowded theater, and you're all going through the ride together, and you're just like, what the fuck, you know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong, some of these, you know, comic book movies and stuff like that, you can have a similar experience, but, you know, it depends, you have to be, like, a certain lover of that film, you could be a Joe off the street, walk in and watch Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, any one of his films, and you're gonna get a reaction, you're going to love it or hate it and i think that's the whole point of yeah. art anyways you don't want somebody to be like that eh, was okay you know uh, yeah
1: <laughs> and, another, and another thing about tarantino okay so look i love scorsese you know kubrick de palma Capola, all these guys but they're all pretty much peaked by
0: 1990 yes yes right
1: so tarantino is a director we feel a certain kinship with because we grew up with him I I agree
0: 100%. Yes. And I think he brought us into a new era because obviously being children of the 80s, 80s were great films. They were fun. They were experimental. But they were just, they were 80s, you know? Yeah. There wasn't any dark stories really being told. I mean, maybe some of the darkest stories like The Empire Strikes Back where, like, the bad guys win. You know, like, you're not getting these dark stories. And then all of a sudden Tarantino says, well, I'm a huge fan of these 70s movies who are pretty dark. But they were even kind of safe because they didn't really push the boundaries. I'm saying, fuck all that. I'm pushing the boundaries. I'm going to take what I love and I'm going to give it the proper due that it always deserves, and I'm just going to shove it down your throat, and if you like it, great. If you don't, I don't fucking care. I'm going to continue making them because I'm making them for me, and I don't care if you like them, and I love that about not worrying if he's going to make big box office or worrying if people are going to like it. A true auteur is someone who does it and says this is what I've got. If you like it, great. If you don't, I don't fucking care. I'm going to keep making them.
1: Amen. That is it. That's exactly it. You know, that's just, it just came at the right time where things are probably feeling a little bit safe a little bit stale you know a little bit like new, yeah. and then you know reservoir dogs was just it's just a mind-blowing experience you know yes. just in, in like in literally every way you know just literally everything about the film was <laughs> was something either you hadn't seen before or it'd been a very long time you know i mean yes. realistic i mean really okay I was thinking about this the other night cause I, when I rewatched the film. You know, like I needed to, as it turned out. <laughs> I <laughs> know. I always I
0: find like I do these podcasts sometimes like just so I could just sit down and watch a film and like give an excuse why I have to watch this movie again. Like I really yeah, don't need it. I literally, I
1: literally had no. I did not need to watch it again, but how I watch it any time. I was just thinking, there's probably there's a lot of great heist movies, but I would put I would I would put Reservoir Dogs up there with, with Kubrick's The Killing. The Killing
0: is a phenomenal film. That's
1: something like 1950-something. Yeah, late 50s. 57, I think. But yeah, exactly. It's up there with that. It's just like that. Badass,
0: just mean. Oh, it's great. I mean, for the especially for the late fifties. What a yeah. what an achievement. If if Kubrick had the was around now, he would have done something like a Reservoir Dogs. The killing would be a lot more like the Reservoir Dogs. You know, obviously he had to be very careful how he did the killing in the movies, especially yeah. they had to do that back then. But yeah. if he was allowed yeah. to have the chains taken off, I think he would have been able to push a boundary uh, like he was able to when we got to Clockwork Orange. You know, exactly. things started to separate a bit more.
1: Yeah, because I think uh, the screenplay for The, the Killing was done by Jim Thompson, who's a really great American crime novelist. The Killing, yeah, 1957. And I know Kubrick had done a couple of, like, smaller things, like a documentary and, and then something else I think quite worked out. So The Killing was really him, like, that was his arrival, you know, as a serious filmmaker. And, yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of great heist movies out there. And a lot of them, they do concentrate on on the heist cell, and that's like you know that's another thing about Reservoir Dogs, which I'm sure we'll get into later. <laughs> yeah. Ta- you know, where Tarantino was like, Nah, fuck that. You know, I'm going to yeah. do it. I'm going to I'm going to do it different. I'm going to do a different take on things. But yeah, yes. So so yeah. So that's just a masterpiece, now. Yeah.
0: So it's I'm going to fu- ask, what is yeah. your favorite Tarantino movie? But I think I just heard what it is. I think it's well, uh, Reservoir yeah.
1: Talks. It, it is. Look, do you know what? But saying.
0: I know, Pick, picking, really, picking your favorite you know, Tarantino movies, like picking your favorite children. But there are some that just, there's always one that rings the truest to you, that you feel like, if I could only watch one, it would be this one. Although you are, you know, you're sacrificing a lot of great ones. but
1: Yeah, but the pacing of the film, the impact of the violence, whether you see it or not. Some you see, some you don't, yeah? Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, the length of the film you know what, it's his like, shortest
0: film that he's well, done it's like just it's over under, nine,
1: yeah just like under, 100 minutes just, yeah yeah exactly um, and and it's just such a lean film you know it's just it's it, it's fat free you know it's just it's just removed the crap and he's just yeah but he's replaced you know he's just does this stuff that it's a genuinely funny film. You know? Oh yes, his. Yeah, you know, He doesn't people, realize the
0: humor in it is like it's it's there, but I don't know if it was ever intentional. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's the not, great deliveries that sometimes you just kind of like. Absolute. Oh, you know,
1: like and his monologues it's are not, great, and you just don't know yeah, that they're going to hit like they do. That's not even like that's black humor. You know, it's just it, it's just just fucking funny. You know, it's not like people. You know, it's not slapstick. I mean, like that. It's just it, it's just a you know like um. The bit where they're in the car, uh, Mr. White, nice guy, Eddie.
0: Yeah, they're all going, they're driving, they're talking about uh, E. Lois and that stuff. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Right. And you can see Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi in the back. See, they're giggling. Do yep. you know what I mean? That's yep. just so infectious. And this, you know, um, you know, how would you feel if every time they have to take a picture at zero handstand, and all that, it, it's yep. just fun. It's just a bunch of guys. Yeah. Pissing around and just having a laugh,
0: you know? A lot of his movies are about those. They're just that normal... What he took is he took normal conversation. It doesn't all have to be exposition. Like, films, a lot of times, are like, they're telling you something to lead you to the next part without having to show it to you. Right, and these are just right. like, hey... Like, even with um, Pulp Fiction, you know, when you open up the scene, they're just talking about, hey, a guy just got back from Amsterdam. They wouldn't be talking about what their job's about to do. He'd be asking them about, how was Amsterdam? You know what I mean? They'd have these conversations, and, exactly. you know, that's what real people do, and I think that's why brought a lot of people... Is like one, it was crazy violent in your mind, but yet it felt real because these people felt real to you. They weren't just like characters. You know, like I love Heat. But they're oh. characters, you know what I mean? They're characters. Robert De Niro's a character, and he's this guy, and he's a steadfast. And then Pacino's the steadfast cop, and we just have those roles. I know nothing else about them. I know what they their goals, and it's a great movie. Absolutely. But in this movie, we get to learn about everybody, and even at the you know we'll get into it in a second in the in the opening storyline too, in the beginning of the movie, you just get to know all these people at a very realistic moments in life and i think that's why for me tarantino's always rang the truest is i can i can actually see myself being like i probably could have
1: been in the car with these guys you know like, I'm like i think i could have been coerced into this diamond heist you know we all sit there talking shit with our friends you know and that's what tarantino you know that's what he knew that's what he, that's what yes. you know. so that's what he wrote so that's what he wrote about yeah, we're you doing know, it
0: now. That's what a podcast is. The podcast yeah, exactly. is guaranteeing those dialogue. Yeah, we're That's just what talking are. shit. It's just talking shit <laughs> about stuff. And exactly, after we're done yeah. with this, we're going to go murder some people. But it's not a big deal. We talked about yeah, a this newer, first.
1: In your basement, yeah. Exactly, in my basement.
0: murder basement.
1: Because you got to that. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. So.
1: Oh.
0: Now, in your opinion, what is his most underrated film? There's, a, I think there's like three or four of them that people don't give as much respect And we try to cover a few of them on the Watch This or Die podcast, but I want to know what yours is.
1: Right. Okay. Well, I will say this. I absolutely adore Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Yes. For for some reason, I don't seem to hear people talking about that one as much. I know it did well.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. I think it's like his second biggest, second or third biggest film that he, like, as far as gross. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But people don't seem to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood like they did Kill Bill or Django or you know, well especially pop Fiction. I mean, I think because it has a lot
0: of like a Jackie Brown feel to it. You know, I mean, you're used, to, you're used to these, you're used to what you think in your mind is big violence, and yet this is a very well put together story. You know, like I feel like it has a very Jackie Brown feel. It's a lot of talking, a lot of scenes, and then all of a sudden some violence will pop up, and you're like, oh, yeah. okay. But you know, like you really get to know people. And I think he's just showing like. You have an idea of what you think Tarantino is, but he's always like, you really don't. Like your mind is put in your in your head how how violent movies are. You know,
1: absolutely. And like I say, I, I'm only assuming that it's underrated just because of the.
0: I know what you mean. I know what you mean.
1: There's usually just a buzz, you know. There's usually people. I mean, uh, kill. I mean, I could. I will talk your ears off about Kill Bill. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, I love you know I love them all, but for some reason, I, even even. Fellow Tarantino fans that I know, they don't seem—they'll all say they like it. They don't seem to talk about that one as much. And I personally, I would—you know—controversially, my favorite. Oh, okay, so my favorite is Reservoir Dogs. Second is Pulp Fiction. And I would say. I'd say once upon a time in Hollywood's my third. Baby.
0: Third, that's not that's not yeah. a bad top three.
1: I think we all know we all know that can change. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It, it
0: change. Yes, absolutely. It changes from when I watch one. I'm like, <laughs> I think this is here, and I'm like, wait a minute, that might be higher than I think it is. Yeah. I know yeah, exactly that, what you mean.
1: That could that could change after this next sip of drink I'm going to take. But you know. Yeah. But, yeah. But but you know, I, I feel strongly about it, and I I, I think that's an absolute classic film. You know. It's. I was you know uh,
0: not to keep bringing up my f- my my partner and crying for two, but uh, Once Upon a Time was one of our most quotable. Probably also because it had just come out. But the whole like the whole Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio upset about him messing up his lines in his trailer scene. We love. Uh, I love when he lights him up on fire with the fucking flamethrower. But also that scene where it's the fake show. Like you get sucked into this movie, a TV show that's not even being made, and you're like, wait a minute, I want to see what happens. Because that Deliverance by Tarantino or by uh, DiCaprio when he's got the little girl with the gun and the whole oh, thing—you're just man. like you're sucked no, you're in, right. and you forget that it's a fucking show. You're like, "This isn't real." And Then you're like, you're lost. "You are lost. You can't go back to it." so And then
1: at the, and at the, end, the violence at the end—you know, with Brad Pitt—it sort of turns into like a Jalo film, like an Italian, like <laughs> yes, you know, it's suddenly, yeah, especially it's when she, insane. when that fucking girl comes running through with a you know with a knife yeah. and she goes into the swimming pool. And you're just like, "This is like fucking Suspiria or like yes, Tenebrae or something." It's just like this. Yes, like serious Argento vibes going on. Yes. You know, uh, but yeah, so I would say, for me personally,
0: that's my... Once Upon a Time best, Hollywood. Most, good, a good answer.
1: But like I said, I think that's underrated. There might yeah. be people who listen to this middle and might be like, what are you talking about? We love- well, I'm that's, not-
0: yeah, that's, I mean, that's movie debates anyways. But there's definitely, I mean, there's probably four that are held high. Obviously, those are dogs in Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, and Glorious Bastards. I think those would be the four that sit at the top of the table, and then the other five.
1: But what's your most underrated? I'm gonna turn around on you. Yeah, What's good. You good?
0: All right, so I think his most underrated is Death Proof. In my opinion, I don't think Death Proof gets any of the love. It's why we used it as our very first episode for Watch This or Die. Right. Yeah. I think Death Proof doesn't get any of the love it deserves. Maybe because it was combined as a film, um, and you know, people didn't understand back then what they were trying to do. Matt and I, and a lot of people I've talked to, have had this conversation. I thought Robert Rodriguez did the best B movie. I thought Tarantino did the best movie, if that makes sense. Like, Robert Rodriguez hit what the B-movie feel of that zombie movie he was going for. It was perfect. Just like his Machete movies. They were just absolutely, like, perfect B-movies, right? And then, but Death Proof is its own, I mean, he turned a car into a slasher. The way the movie starts and then the way it ends, the girl power at the end, uh, it's just, uh, it's two movies in one. Yeah, they're they're brilliant. No I I, no, I. I don't think it gets. I don't think Russell gets the the credit he for being you know stuntman Mike. It's just oh man, it's so good. It's such a great film that people just you know they overlook. It's oh, usually his ni- like you know his ninth. People say there's ten films. There's not. I will say it again. No. Kill Bill is considered one. He considers it one. So if, if the Lord Tarantino considers it one, it's one. All right. It's one. It's and one. we'll get into it when we get to Kill Bill <clears yeah, <clears <throat> in a couple yeah, months. A, a we'll get into it a whole night. night. We'll explain the whole thing. Yeah, why? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, for me, death proof uh, does not get the um, the love it truly deserves.
1: I think ultimately you're right, but like I say, with once upon a time in Hollywood, I'm just like, hang on a minute, people aren't even.
0: No, you. I think you're right too. I think
1: they're not even vocal about not liking it. Yeah. You know, so it's not. Yeah. That's just not. It hasn't got that. Um...
0: It's almost the middle of the road. That they're like, yeah, it's good. You know what I mean? Which I think he would hate. You know, he either wants you to hate it or love it. I <laughs> don't probably, think he'd be yeah. happy with yeah, it, it being didn't like, eh.
1: like it. Don't say it's okay. I think the Don't four that,
0: that reach at the bottom, I always think Django's right there, either in the top or not. You know, so like he's it's in there. Oh, I always yeah. think like hatefully. Eight- Because it's a slow burn, people, you know, they can't handle that. Jackie Brown, because it's an adapted and it doesn't have a lot of violence coming off of Pulp Fiction. Death Proof doesn't get a whole lot of play. And like you said, Once Upon a Time. I think those four, but some people put each of those movies, except for maybe Death Proof, but like in their top. I've heard Jackie Brown being his best of all time, people say. You know what I mean? So I think it just depends on where you fall. Exactly.
1: Retrospectively, they're saying that at the time they probably didn't.
0: No, no, they don't, yeah. Well, because you're coming off Pulp Fiction, how do you, yeah. and then if you yeah. bookend that between Pulp Fiction and then Kill Bill, it's like, you know what I mean, like two different movies, you know, it's crazy, it's usually, usually it's nine on the list.
1: Yeah, no, fair enough, and you know what, I've got to be honest with you, that might be nine on mine. My...
0: That's perfectly fine, it's perfectly fine, like, it's hard for me, like, when I go through I'm like, shit, where do I put it, because I love it, but I'm like, damn it, you know, ranking them's hard, oh, yeah. it's hard.
1: Yeah, no, it's a difficult one, that's a difficult question to begin with.
0: Well, here's a good one then. Our last one before we jump in. Who is your all-time favorite character in the Tarantino universe? Now, for those people who aren't aware, there are 12 films that we consider the Tarantino universe. There are the nine he has directed, and then there are three that he wrote but didn't direct. Uh, True Romance, he wrote. um, He wrote the original screenplay for Natural Born Killers, which he gets story credit for, which in a couple episodes we will actually talk about how that all went. And then there is from Dusk Till Dawn He wrote and starred in And let his friend Robert Rodriguez direct it So There's the 12 In that There's a lot of Fucking people In that universe And I know this is A very hard But who would be Your favorite character From that universe Just one character Just like Everything about that Character in that movie And this has to be For your favorite movie But just some oh. of that Character is like Man I loved that Performance I just loved who they were
1: oh, You're fucking killing me here. Okay I'm going Aldo Rain
0: That's an excellent Excellent, excellent answer. Actually, literally everything <laughs> he
1: says, everything <laughs> yes. he says, everything he does, his facial expressions, just the whole Italian thing. <laughs> <laughs> Arrivederci. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so.
0: You're not. You're not wrong. It's So good. It really is good.
1: Was it Goralami? Goralami.
0: <laughs> oh. I, Do You know
1: what? I, I mean, I love inglorious. But yeah, Brad Brad Pitt, you know, Aldo Ray's <laughs> yeah, he's just he's just the kind of he's just the character who is just like you kinda know whatever happens, he's gonna be okay. Yes. He's had his throat cut. For, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, somehow he's been hung well, possibly or, hung or But yeah. he got away from it somehow, yes. Yeah, somehow he was able to get out of it.
1: If you survive the hanging.
0: Yes, the (laughs) lynching in Lynchburg, Tennessee.
1: I want to be on your team. Yes. Yeah, so he's my guy, man. He's the one.
0: But, and only Tarantino could get away with calling a white guy Aldo the Apache." You know what I mean? Oh, like, it's <laughs> so good. You're just like, wait, what? And he's scalp and completely taking Native American traditions, and like, now we're going to scalp Nazis. You just like you buy into because it like it's the fucking Nazis. If he was scalping other people, you'd be so offended. But he's like yeah. Nazis. were like, yeah, fuck it, scalp them all. I don't give a shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this is the funny thing. I don't know about you, but whenever I have conversations like this, it just makes me want to watch this.: fucking know, movies again. I
0: know. I <laughs>
1: know. <laughs> just like, oh yeah, that's just all comes flooding back. You know, I know everything. Yeah. So yeah, Aldo Rang. What about you?
0: Oh, that I that, yeah, yeah. go back you and get, forth. I yeah, go back you get and away forth. That
1: easily, so
0: yeah. for me, I do believe. Oh, man. I, like, I toss up every time. Originally, for, my, for the longest time, it was Mr. Blonde. But I actually think it's Calvin Candy. And mm. because I thought Leonardo DiCaprio deserved the Oscar for this. Okay, with well, that. As much as I love Christoph Waltz in *Inglorious Bastards. And he, I mean, I've never seen a glass of milk be more terrifying in my life. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> someone asking for a glass of milk or wait for the cream. Like, it's fucking terrifying from him. But maybe and also you have to probably throw Django in with him, but the way that he plays that slave owner, and like just so he can, you know, go from like moments of being like laughing or where's my sister and kisses her and like these crazy ways he stares at each other and then that whole scene at the end about the skulls of black slaves. It's just everything about what Leonardo DiCaprio did in that film, as good as he was in Once Upon a Time, he is fantastic. As Calvin Candy, Calvin Candy to me is one of the most reprehensible characters he's ever created. Even more so than the Nazi, than uh, Christoph Waltz in um, *Inglourious*. And uh, it's yeah, I I just watched Django the other day, and he's so oh, god when he comes on screen and just everything about him. Obviously with Django, with uh. With our man there, Mr. Fox, playing with him. It works. I mean, the two of them together make such tense moments on scene. You know, yeah. when they're going back and forth and pitting each other against each other.
1: Well, I think a lot of people, you know, if anyone doubts DiCaprio as an actor.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Just watch Django Unchained. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, good choice. Solid choice. Absolutely. Thank you. Here's some fucking facts. Jack.
0: A couple times in our podcast, I like to give out little facts, little facts and figures so people can have something tangible to take home with them. I have a little segment called Fucks Given. In this movie, there are 269 uses of the word fuck, so it is his number one movie with that use. Another film we might be coming up with in a couple episodes is Close. I never knew that. 269 uses of the word fuck in the movie Reservoir Dogs.
1: That's incredible. Body count.
0: I'm gonna say six. Oh, you're close. Halfway. Eleven. Eleven go eleven. down. Yes, eleven. I know.
1: That's. I that was a terrible guess. That was a terrible guess,
0: man. Halfway. You know, a lot of people. We'll get to some movies where it's where it's high, but the majority are usually pretty low. Like he, it just feels like more. Maybe because he he really emphasizes the violence, and so it's very reminiscent. You just think everything is extremely violent in these films.
1: Do You know, what? I forgot about the cop. That's one. Yeah, of course, I forgot about. It. Yeah, no, no, actually, the more I think about it. Yeah. I got a bit cock I think I got a bit cocky then. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh,
0: some bare feet sightings. Tarantino, he has a foot fetish. There's no doubt. However, Very this is only of- one of his two movies that have zero bare feet sightings. None. There are none in this film and there are none in The Hateful 8. All the other movies yeah. have at least one or more female feet being shown. Thankfully, he doesn't show male feet because let's be honest, the male foot is like most things on the male body. It's not exciting, it's not, not yeah, a pleasure to look at. Yeah. You know, we just are not designed to look pleasantly upon. Agree, agree. Next up, the motherfucking Tarantino verse. Now, since we are talking about the Tarantino verse, there are six connections in this film. Number one, Mr. White mentions. He used to be romantically and professionally connected to Alabama. Who is Alabama Worley married in true romance? Obviously, we'll get into that next month, but originally, the events of true romance and differently in the original script from Tarantino and Alabama moves on in her life to be with Mr. White. Number two, there is a mention of Mr. Blonde's parole officer as Seymour Scagnetti. He is believed to be the brother of Detective Jack Scagnetti, played by the coked-out Tom Sizemore in the film Natural Born Killers. Number three, this shouldn't be a surprise, but Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde's real name, he is the brother of Mr. Vincent Vega, played by the great John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. And that was supposed to be a movie called The Vega Brothers, which, unfortunately, didn't come to fruition. But maybe now that Tarantino's starting to write novels about his old movies, we might actually get a Vega Brothers novel. You never know. That, that might be very, worth it.
1: Very, very, good point. Yes. Very good point. Yeah. Number four.
0: Lawrence Dimmick, a.k.a. Mr. White, is believed to be somehow related to Jimmy Dimmick, which is Quentin Tarantino's character in Pulp Fiction. Now, in fairness, I think this is a post thing that happened. In the movie, he's only known as Jimmy, but over time, his credits in the movie have become his last name of Dimmick. So we shall see how that plays out, but apparently they're related. I'm going to say cousins. They're definitely not father and son, but they're cousins of somehow down the road. Mm. Number five. For those who pay attention, there is a radio commercial for Jack Rabbit Slims which we will later see come to fruition in Pulp Fiction. Number six. And we get our first sighting of what will become the Big Kahuna Burger Cup that would later be with logo in Pulp Fiction. Mr. Blonde has it when he comes back, and there's the whole standoff about, did you forget the fries to go with that soda? That cup, the colored lines, just didn't have the Big Kahuna symbol on it yet. Obviously, that probably came post, but it is the introduction. Mm. And there is one hidden one, and this was, you'd have to go to the special features for this. But there's a scene cut out where Nice Guy Eddie is driving Mr. White and. Mr. Pink to pick up the diamonds that Mr. Pink has stashed. And in it he talks about getting a nurse possibly named Bonnie, alluding to Jimmy's wife Bonnie. And they even say something about a Bonnie situation that never makes the film. However, that obviously is the genesis for what would become the Bonnie situation two years later in Pulp Fiction. And those were the facts. Jack. And now the gospel according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 1. Reservoir. Dogs. This is one of 4 nonlinear storytelling devices. Now, his first two films that he puts out were non-linear. And by nonlinear, they don't go from A to B. We don't start off at A, and by the time we get to the end, he jumps all over the place. And by that, he'll jump back in time. We'll see things that are, well, whole sections of going backwards. So he starts off with non-linear storytelling. He would really jump into this in Pulp Fiction. But he definitely plays with it here, which is fantastic in my opinion. And what he did is he kind of takes the love of the thing, putting people in one pl- spot, unable to leave, making it more of a pressure cooker type feel. And he would have later do it with Hateful Aid as well. He also wanted to tell a story about a heist without showing the heist, which is absolutely genius. I mean, we start off the movie with, you know, we meet these guys and they're going to go do a heist and then we never get the heist. We show up and someone's screaming bloody murder. And from there we have to figure out, what the fuck is happening? Now part of him was inspired, I don't know if you know this or not, Steve, but um, from Glengarry Glen Ross and not the storytelling so much, but as far as Glengarry Glen Ross is about a robbery that happens at the offices that it's the post of it. So there someone has stolen some yeah. of the good you know, the the good leads when you're trying to figure out who amongst the people did that. So you don't actually get, you know, to find out. So it's one of those kind of stories. And as you were talking earlier, I think it's what makes this one of the great heist films of all time is, one, you don't see the heist, but you think you do. And two, you're drawn into it because suddenly we're thrown into it where we meet these characters, and the next thing we know is one of them is bleeding to death, and another guy's telling them he's going to be okay. And we have no idea how it went down. And we just get this interaction between Mr. White and Mr. Orange, and then Mr. Pink shows up. And so we've got half of the crew's there, and they're kind of describing just what's going on. And in our minds, we're always like putting it together. We're like, oh my God. And we almost feel left out. Like you're like, God damn it, I wanted to fucking see this heist but not seeing it is what makes the movie so tantalizingly amazing is we're not you know we're not privy to everything that's happened
1: yeah like i think with the heist i mean i don't know if that was born out of necessity when he wrote about you know thinking like i'm only gonna because he was gonna make it and you know he was he was gonna make it on the cheap wasn't he you know yes he was like, so much.
0: the thirty thousand he made off of selling true romance he was going to make it sixty million black and white yeah. with some friends you know he was like fuck it i'm gonna make my own
1: so really i mean whether it was born out of necessity thinking well, i can't afford to shoot that so that's irrelevant really because you know it just allows him to to do cause we talked we talk about high earlier, and if you think there's films like rafifi you know thief Michael Mann movie, and like, uh, there's another, there's a French movie, I think it's Melville's, The Circle Rouge, but they concentrate so much on the heist. Even the killing, as you talked about. Absolutely, but but they, a lot of these, a lot of these films, they sacrifice character for the, for getting into the minutiae of the heist.
0: Yeah, agreed.
1: So, So, like you say, so by not having the heist, it just allows you to explore the characters more, and we know that's what it's all about. You know.
0: Well, then he throws into us that you know, when they show up, there's a rat among us. And now we're like, okay, we're missing three characters. We're not sure. He does a brilliant job of making who who does become the person we find out to be the the rat. He's the person who's injured. So Right off the bat, we're already sympathetic. That it's no way it's this guy. He got shot. You know what I mean? The rat doesn't get shot. Yeah. So we're like, there's these three guys who haven't shown up. Could it be brown? Could it be blue? Could it be blonde? We're like, oh shit. Uh, is it maybe even Mr. Pinky's? Just you know, we, we don't know. And the whole time, so we've missed the heist. We don't know how our thing fell apart. We're now figuring out who the fuck's the rat. Like, he keeps us jumping around all over the place until he eventually finally gives it to us, but we have no clue
1: who it might be for the longest time. You know, like, And also, but I think you, you just get so wrapped up in these characters that sometimes you even kind of forget about the rat situation. You're just so wrapped up in the dialogue. Yes. And, you know, the entrances of certain characters. I mean, you know, like you know, Mr. Blonde, and yes, I mean, and and, and, and Mr. Pink. You know, I'm, you, you just Super get so, so you good. just you're so engrossed, so you know, in the dialogue, and yeah. and, and, the star, and the style and the style and the style. You know, of the film. At certain points, I'm like, I'm not even. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about it. The rat, you know? that's know?
0: Just... I mean, we start off with learning about what what Tarantino thinks Like a Virgin is about. And while Madonna has come out and said it's not about that, I say bullshit. I still think it is. Like, I know, I know that, you yeah, know, well, the... she's the artist, I... but the genius of him coming out with what he thinks his interpretation of, he's like the first troll yeah. of the internet before the internet. Like, He's like, you know, I know what this is about. And he's coming well, out down sub- this, that, you know, bit. it's so good.
1: That's what subtext is all about, though, isn't yeah. it?
0: Yeah. Well, we get to know all these people. You know, then, you know, Joe's a fucking, you know, we're like, well, this guy's worried about what the name of some Asian girl is he can't think of. He's pissing off Mr. White. We can figure out that Mr. Blonde's pretty, pretty cool. He's, like, the coolest guy there. Mr. Orange doesn't say a lot, but there is a little slip that I'll talk about in a second. And then Mr. Pink is, like, telling us, like, we don't tip. And you're kind of like, I don't know how they're doing things in the U.K. right now, but over here in America, we've had a big <laughs> dispute over what the living wage should be for for jobs, like a McDonald's. Yes, I mean recently now with the way we're being able to pay is you, you know, you can pay with your car, but now there are things in like McDonald's or even just places you would normally pick up food, fast food that now allow you to leave a tip. (laughs) And so every time I see that I feel bad if I don't leave a tip, but I'm like, I'm just picking this up. Like you didn't, like, you didn't do the normal thing that a tip requires. I said, in my mind, I hear Mr. Pink in my fucking head. He's like, well, we don't feel the necessary to, to tip miss to pick McDonald's. And now I'm like, God damn it, point. I think he might have fucking set us up for this. This Son of a bitch, you know what I mean? Like, I hear Mr. Pink's go. voice in my head every time I, I'm brought with this dilemma. I feel terrible. I'm like, well, uh, why who, who am I tipping here? There's like nine of you working.
1: Like, how are you breaking this tip up? I mean, I wouldn't pay 20% what? for picking up food? You know what? Listen, I always tip, yeah. And in the UK, tipping isn't even really a thing, right? I know. I, only, always, yeah. I always tip, but I always say to whoever I'm with, learn a fucking take. Yeah, exactly. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're asking always, me to help pitch it for the
1: rent. <laughs> I, I always matter that. I'm going to And that's, well, I'm not always the one. I'm not always the one who says it, but someone will always say it. You should write that know.
0: underneath your signature. Learn to fucking type. And just just, just so it could go viral. Just so people are like, what an asshole. And then you can be like, no, I just... The... And some people would totally yeah. get it. Other people would be so incensed that you had their balls. Yeah. But learn no, to I mean, fucking type.
1: But, we, but the funny thing is, whoever says it always says it with an American accent. So you know what their reference will <laughs> be
0: Well, hey, clearly you must pay your people over there better than we do over here in America.
1: I think we do. But like I say, if I just went out and learned a fucking type, you'd think, oh, you prick, you know. (laughs) But like if I go out and learn a fucking type, you know I'm talking about reservoir dogs, so you kind of get away with it. But I always tip. I just want that, you know.
0: Well... (laughs) Yeah, you know, you're, you're, I, I don't always do it, but it's when I, I his, his voice is in my head every time. I'm like, this motherfucker is the reason we're doing this now. Like, out of the blue, yeah. the person who set this up for their little store now to do it wirelessly is now like, hey, Reservoir Dogs had a point. We should tip these people.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, no, they were right. Absolutely. But yeah, great, great thing.
0: Now, the great thing, I think, that really brought people into this film is we get code names for people from colors. Now, he's not the first to do it, obviously. I think the original Taking a Pelham uh, 123 did the same kind of thing where the you know the characters didn't use their surnames. And the color code names are fantastic. And the way Lawrence Tierney delivers that scene and Steve Buscemi. Nice. Now, I know it's controversial. I know it is. I understand that. But it gets one of the biggest laughs is when... Buscemi's uh, like, why do I got to be uh, Mr. Pink? Uh. And Tyranny just levels him with it. And I won't say it on here, so I won't ruffle feathers. But when he drops it, to this day, it's, it's one of the funniest lines ever. And it's not like he's calling him gay. He's like, look, I'm na- I, didn't- I named you these because they're just colors. But if you need a reason, then fine. It's because you're gay. You know what I mean? He just throws it at him. not only attack him as an idiot, but attack his masculinity. as well. so I was like, because you're that. That's what I think of you for asking me this fucking question. And it's an old <laughs> Early old man too,
1: and absolutely, and also the way Tarantino uh, he then says, "Well, Mr. Brown sounds a little bit like Mr. Shit." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's still not <laughs> so as it's bad. Just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that kind of starts off this whole not Like my <laughs> name, so yeah. it's just kind of, like, and that's that you know, kind of proves Lawrence Ciani's point, sort of thing. But like, uh, yeah, everyone wants to be everyone wants to be Mr. Black. Uh, yes, yes.
0: Lawrence tyranny is so great in this, but yet he got fired three days in. He was yeah. fired by Tarantino because he was the hardest person to work with on set.
1: I can well imagine. I
0: guess he and I think it was Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen, actually got into a fight on set. I don't know why. It's so weird when you hear these things. Cause you watch the movie and you would never expect any of that. But then you hear these stories you and, you're, and you're kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Like, these are adults getting paid to be in a film.
1: Like, what are you fighting about on set? Like, do your job. I guess that's why it's called acting, you know? I guess so. I guess so. But going back to um, what you were saying about the, the color code, you know, the cult, there's another film I saw once and it wasn't very good. It's called Day of the Wolves. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's a TV movie, and it's about a criminal mastermind who brings these guys in a small town because they haven't got any real security to rob the place. I think it was a TV movie from 1971, and they give them a beard each to wear as their disguise, and they're given numbers instead of colors. Oh, gotcha, like number one, number two. Yeah, I've heard that too. It's it's a pretty, I mean, I don't make, do you know what? I haven't checked. I might even be on YouTube this movie. It wasn't particularly good, but uh, it just made me think. You know, yeah, it's not colours, but it's the same principle. You know, but yeah, they, they were given uh, they were given numbers instead. But that's the only. Can't really think of any other
0: movies that's done anything Well, you've like. got um, um, a Point Break, where they—I mean, you know who the characters are, but when they do their jobs, they're wearing the dead president—they're wearing the president's mask. So you've got like, was it Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Nixon? I think. Um, of course. You know, those are those are cool. You know, I mean, like, that's a—you know—I like that use, and that was obviously prior to this movie. But I will say, anytime since this film. When you see people who are using fake names, I don't know if it's because I'm jaded because of this film's use of it and how well they did it. Or if it's maybe this the other films don't always do it as well. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't feel as general. And I know that Tarantino's not first, but maybe because for me, it's the first time I saw it. And I didn't see taking a Pelham one, two, three or some of these other older films that did it. This was the first time I was like, Oh, okay. You know, there's like, oh and and it worked, like it made sense. Because he goes through naming people and you get this whole backstory as opposed to just being like, you know, named I'm Mr. November. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But in like in Reservoir Dogs, okay. You know, someone you know, you're gonna get people saying, Oh,
1: well that's They'd already done that in taking the Pelham One, Two, Three, but you're like, yeah, that was like what twenty five years previously, you know? Exactly, like, exactly. You know, yeah, he's playing with playing with these things that he's seen and that influenced him. But that's but that's what they, that's that's what artists do, you know? they Exactly. Yes. They're all kind of it. They're they're soaking all the stuff up, and it comes out one way or another, you know. But yeah, you, I, I can remember. I don't know, well, they did that in Pelham 1, 2, 3, is if to say, you know, he hasn't got an original bone in his body and, and the City on Fire thing. But if you've actually watched City on Fire, you can't comp- – I'm not – Yeah, it, just because he took City the on.
0: outfits you, doesn't mean yeah, that he took the whole film, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. I think he added a bit more than – you know, yes. Do you think. Yes. But yeah, you know. But you always had then like people.
0: What I don't know who said it, but some uh, I know there's someone out there who said all great artists steal. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing's new under the sun at all. You know, James Cameron, who I'm not a huge fan of, especially of his recent stuff. But Avatar's Fern Gully live action. <laughs> if anyone <laughs> right. watches the cartoon <laughs> Fern Gully and watches Avatar, yeah. Avatar is just a more violent live action version of Fern Gully. All right. So right. like you know, not everything is brand new, but it's how you you know you chop it it's up what you do, make Robert. the sausage yeah. and put it out there you know there you there's, there's there's really yeah. shitty tasting sausages and there's really great tasting sausages all made from similar ingredients just who's the better chef and he absolutely. is a, one of the greatest chefs of all time in, my, in yeah. my opinion
1: yeah no absolutely
0: and as we talked about especially with your podcast leads to this perfect little point i want to talk about k Billy's super sounds of the 70s with the great american comedian uh, Mr. Wright and his just very monotone, <laughs> Stephen Wright's monotone voice is just fantastic. It's just, you know, it's K Billy Super Sounds of the 70s. We can keep rolling with this little ditty. It's like he is like, <laughs> it's almost like he's forced <laughs> to do this radio show. He's, you know, he just hates his life. Just he, he basically plays himself as a DJ. I was like, if Stephen Wright didn't make any comedy, he would have been a DJ host in Boston somewhere doing K Billy yeah. Super Sounds of the 70s. It adds so much. It's like the way that the music... Is played and the way that it comes in and the way that you know you get to lead in with him. And I always love like the next caller gets two tickets to the see Don Bodine's behemoth at the cars It's like it's just like like it's a monster truck rally, which I don't know if they have in the UK because it seems like a very redneck American thing to do. But it's like it's supposed to be a very exciting event. It's just like he gives nothing to it. But yet then him juxtaposed with the the music that comes on it's just brilliant. And there is not a single scored piece. Of music in this film, it's all music that he was able to spend a budget on to get in the film. And there are songs you imagine in there, just, it? it's amazing. I can't, no, I can't imagine it with the score. I can't, no, because no. this is the score, it works. And Absolutely. and they lead you into it because, like, in the first opening scene, like, if you guys were listening to K Billy Superstar and they actually go over a song, and, like, they're making fun of <laughs> a nice guy, Eddie not knowing who the killer and the lights go down in Georgia was, like, it's just like <laughs> it, it works. And then when you hear him, you're just like, ah. Oh perfect and there's not a better dj than stephen wright there just isn't he was absolutely perfectly cast voice-wise
1: no no i think that's um again very scorsese did the same sort of thing in uh, mean street you know Uh, and i would imagine that's probably yeah not not the radio show thing but but the the choices yeah yeah the music was probably influenced i mean you know we all know what a big influence scorsese has been you know on tarantino so but yeah, yeah, I just could I was when I rewatched it, I was thinking, you couldn't score this sock this movie. You know, not now well obviously No
0: to. you couldn't. Even if you tried even if you tried to pull some more colon pieces in, it wouldn't work. This works just solely on the music. It is absolutely perfect. It is a person Let's be honest. If you're a Cinephile, like clearly the two of us are, and an audiophile, music and movies can go hand in hand. Songs can make a movie, can make a band. The Breakfast Club, don't you forget about me, is yeah. It's it's iconic. It's there's moments in film where the song is iconic. Um yeah. over here, Queen became big again in the nineties. When Wayne's World put Bohemian Rhapsody in its movie. It right. re- re-kicked their career, and they've even said that. It restarted their career, you know, after Freddie Mercury dies, they kind of, you know, they go away, you get grunge, and all of a sudden here comes this, you know, this movie and ends Bohemian Rhapsody, and they start headbanging to it, yeah. and that's it, you know what I mean? like, And people fell in love with it because people, at the time, you're riding around in cars listening to music, and you're like, oh, so now you're headbanging to it, and it just caught on, and it's yeah. very similar that Tarantino would then find great music and Bring it in and marry it with his images And they would become absolutely iconic Like we're going to talk about it but right now Is stuck in the middle with you Whenever right. I hear it come on I don't Turn it off whenever I hear it no matter where it is the only thing I could think of is I should be dancing with either a straight razor or a can of gasoline, and I should be torturing somebody. And it's the most bubblegum pop song ever that you would be like, it's almost like if I said, In Sync, I'm gonna kill someone to In Sync. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, you feel like those don't
1: jive together. Here's a question, though. Pre-Reservoir Dogs, we do have times
0: stuck in the middle of the year. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. Pre-Reservoir Dogs, I don't remember hearing it. And my father worked in radio through for many stations. Back in the heyday of radio. And, I, you know, I, some of my love, which I think one of the reasons I truly am in love with Tarantino's movies is I had a very vast upbringing of different radio genres. So it wasn't just like, you know, he was stuck at one station. He went to different stations. So when he would go, we would listen to him. So I have a very uh, a deep catalog. Of music I'll listen to So Tarantino playlist Resonate with me Because I can go from 70s funk To 70s R&B To 80s To all kinds of music I can put it all in one And it all is music to my ears Because I you know, was brought up in that Right. But I can't remember hearing Stuck in the Middle with You Until that moment I might have You know what I mean? I might have But in my memory That is so seared in now I don't remember ever hearing it prior And ever hearing it since
1: I don't think I'd ever heard it
0: I'll be honest, most of the music that came on outside of Carpet Ride, I don't remember. But now they are integral parts of my DNA. When I, <laughs> I mean, because like, like you know, Little Green Bag isn't played much, at least here. You know, what I mean, like even on some of the older stations, even on Sirius XM, I don't hear Little Green Bag be played, or let alone uh, Lime in the Coconut. You know, those songs don't get the play that they may have a long time ago. So when I yeah. get a chance to hear them, especially when I put on a Tarantino playlist, it's like transporting back in time yeah. to that moment I saw Reservoir Dogs for the first time.
1: No, the only song I knew from the movie was magic carpet ride but that's only because yeah. it was that's only because it was sampled in a grandmaster flash and furious five song that i'd heard <laughs> <laughs> so, so so in a way i didn't know any of the songs really you know but i you know yeah i think struck in the middle i i only like that song because of Reservoir dogs oh i agree with you 100 percent. if i you're probably right However, it is so
0: catchy now. Like it, it's oh, like I mean, it's. I almost am mad at myself it, yeah. for thinking that I wouldn't have liked this song without someone getting their ear hacked off. You know what I mean, or getting almost set on fire by gasoline. Like I almost feel like yeah. what is wrong with me that I had to have a yeah. horrible trauma, traumatic moment for somebody. Yeah, happened so, for yeah, me to be uh, like
1: oh. But now, like you say, I hear it now, and I'm like, you know, you can't turn this off.
0: No, no, I'll I be mad at someone if they turn it off. And I'm actually happy, when like I'm walking through like a grocery store or a building and it's like on their music, and I'm like, oh, this is
1: fantastic. Like for me, it's a whole and joy. And you're swishing your imaginary blade around. Oh, I am.
0: I'm just oh, doing a little dance. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> Torch you. That, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> Absolutely. I should just say that next time. Someone be at me like, "What the fuck?"
1: Yeah, you, you probably you probably have said it before. <laughs> That's why you get that funny look when you go in that store. Yes, that, store loves that guy again.
0: I think it's the moment that cements or starts Tarantino to be who he is. Don't get me wrong; everything else in the movie up to that point is fantastic. It's amazing, and then all of a sudden, this happens. And you've seen torture in some movies, this and that, but it's always something, you know, like it's either we just come up past it, or it's happening, we don't really get to see it. Never have we seen it in music video form. You know what I mean? uh, We're Gen Xers, so MTV was our life, you know what I mean? Like, images with music and all being experimental, and you're like, what the fuck? And then here this guy comes with, hey, I'm gonna give you this really pop song that was famous in the 70s, I'm gonna take this character who is cool and you like him, but you shouldn't. He's our our anti-hero, well before Mr. White from Breaking Bad ever became as famous as he is, and I'm gonna cut this guy's ears off to this song and possibly light them on fire and you're going to actually have a fucking blast the entire time. You know uh, what I mean? Like, like there's a horrible thing happening to somebody. Like, if, if you were to see behind me in my basement, something getting their ear hacked off, you'd be horrified. But <laughs> i put throw a little pop music to it and suddenly you're like, well, you know what? I mean, maybe he
1: deserved it. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe this yeah, prick deserved maybe. what he's getting. Absolutely. No, but that scene is so fucking brutal. You know, because the way that um, the way that Mr. Blonde aims the gun at the cop and he's like obviously Trey, tied yeah. to the chip. And that's like, oh my god, that's you know. That's but so. he
0: just got done telling him too, like you're gonna pray for a quick death, but it's not gonna come. And then he pulls a gun on him, <laughs> and yet his 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 whole reaction is fight or flight, and he thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's gonna be shot right there, but he just told him, yeah, you gonna yeah, you're wish gonna I die. was gonna pull this <laughs> fucking trigger? Like what I'm doing right now is the best you're going to fucking get from me. And, honestly, you should have just begged for it at that point instead of trying to flee uh, yeah. away.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and then when he leaves the room to get the gasoline and the music, you, you know, the music sort of stops, obviously, but, it, but when he comes back again, it's still playing. You know, that's, yeah. just, that, that's just that reality, you know. But, oh, and he goes to the trunk. You have no idea what he's going to get, either
0: the first time you see it. You're no, thinking, no. what could he possibly get that's worse than what he's been doing?
1: Yeah, oh, but then when he's pouring that gasoline and he's, like, moving around, and, oh, man. But, you know, that's a solid, that's that's just it, It's no, yeah. So all the things he may have
0: referenced to bring into this film at that moment, he has made whatever those references are his own and pushed them to a boundary they weren't even prepared to do back in the day. And the great yeah, thing about yeah. this scene is everyone thinks they see the ear get cut off. And I've always told people, your imagination can come up with things far worse than what they could show on screen. And Absolutely. When, he, when they decided to pan away from it, and there are, if you have the uh, Blu-ray or the DVD or any of the special editions, you can see the scenes of that they shot of him actually cutting it off. And I'll be honest with yeah. you, one, 30 years down the road, obviously, it doesn't look as good as a practical. No. Obviously, maybe back then it might have looked as good because you'd never seen it before. But in honesty, when when he goes hold still and we pan away and you can hear him screaming and then he comes back and then he starts talking to it, it does so much more for you because in your mind you're envisioning what that hacking off was like and feeling as opposed to getting an actual visceral reaction of seeing it. And so when he comes walking in with that ear in his hand, was that as good for you As it was for me all the shit he says It's so fucking fantastic I've got to admit I've got I've to admit when, when he talks to
1: the air I do always giggle Oh me too Oh it's fantastic <laughs> that's, It's fantastic That always makes me laugh When he talks to the
0: air It's fantastic Because if oh, you're that's... gonna be A sadistic son of a bitch There have been so many Monologues said in life and movies where like You know I'm the big bad guy And stuff And there's been cool ones But when he just yeah. He just got done and, and talked like It's so sadistic Like it's just like
1: yeah, but he's such It almost a, makes like, yeah. Bill
0: and Kill Bill not even seem sadistic You know what I mean Like
1: yeah, yeah, yeah You're gonna shoot yeah. shoot He's
0: pregnant, but this dude is talking he's got to these, every You know, year. he's
1: he's got these chiseled good looks, you know, and all this, and then he just does the most brutal thing. Yes, just amazing. Ah, amazing.
0: So we'd already had like a little bit of a lore of, of him because Mr. Pink and Mr. White are talking about him. Like, can you believe he did this? And he's shooting people. And even one nice guy Eddie shows up, and they're talking about, him, he's like, bam! But you know, and he's like. I don't like alarms, Mr. White. And you're kind of like, Jesus. And you think you know what level of psychosis he has until they're not out the door. That car's barely pulled away before this <laughs> motherfucker. Right like
1: right
0: He's been, he's hoping, like, it's almost like, I mean, it's a good thing he didn't give it away, but you almost kind of let, want to look at him to see if like there's any kind of glee in his eye when he says, we're going to leave him babysitting him. And he's like, oh, some shit's going to go down.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but in a way, you know, he is right when he says, you know, if they hadn't have done what, what I told them not to do, <laughs> they'd still be alive. You know? But then you do think, would they be alive?
0: <laughs> now, I don't know if you've, you have this game. I own it and will never get rid of it, and I still have a PlayStation 2 just for this reason. And I now I think I'm going to play it later today because now I'm thinking about it. At yeah. least here in the States, for the PlayStation 2, they released a game called Reservoir Dogs. Now, this game fills in all the gaps of the heist. Now, I will say that's far more violent, and it's a video game, so you have to go through things. So you're killing a lot of cops and people. Like, I'm just going to be honest with you. But you get a chance to see how Mr. Blue dies.
1: Do you kill any real people? You can take people hostage? Yeah, you can. Like, you can. Yeah, yeah. No, no, just cops. Yeah.
0: <laughs> which, given the context of the world we're in, <laughs> I know, yeah. That doesn't, that, that's definitely not a Blue Lives Matter fan favorite over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you might want to rent that part
0: out. <laughs> I almost wore for this, I don't know if you can see, I have a Tarantino shirt, but I, ah. I have a Great Reservoir Dog shirt, which is. The cop tied up on the chair with head down and his ear missing, and it says, can you hear that? Now, I've ah, worn wow. that in the sense, and I always have to point to the back of it because it says Reservoir Dogs in the back. But some people have no idea. Like, they think I'm just wearing this. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Jesus uh, God, this guy's it's wild. worth it to me to see, just see the reactions. I just enjoy uh, people not being uh, able to handle that's... fictions. It's the ear-cutting scene that solidifies and cements Tarantino is going to be a director that we need to, uh, to look out for, which would then make, you know, his jumps to the OD needle scene and then even the gimp scene. Later on in Paul Fiction, you'd be like, "Whoa, you know like yeah. it, it, you just weren't you weren't ready, but if you'd watched Reservoir Dogs and the ear cutting scene, you should have known that he was going to try to ump the ante with yeah, some what of did the you stuff, expect? you know?" Exactly. Bring out the gimp, you're like, "Oh, fuck, this can't be." That's never a phrase you've heard uttered and be like, "Well, that sounds like this could be, you know, bring out the cheese." You know, like, there's no There's no <laughs> that's one that's ever right, want to hear. No, no.
1: Yeah, you never, not ever, ever.
0: Not, not on a first date, <laughs> male or female. No. You don't ever want to hear, hey. Do you mind if I bring out maybe the gimp? Like, you know what I <laughs> hey, mean? Maybe third,
1: maybe third day.
0: Third day. We wait to the gimp for the third day to see how she likes it. He or she I'm likes an old it. Fa-
1: hey, I'm an old-fashioned guy. <laughs>
0: I'm a romantic, <laughs> all right? <laughs> yeah. Here's something that's very interesting. While Mr. Blonde is talked about as the most violent character and does one of the most violent acts in any of Tarantino's movies, he kills no one on screen. Not a single person is killed at his hands on screen. He kills no one.
1: Very true, yeah.
0: So it's crazy how his lore has been built up. as like, if you were to say, ask people, who's the most violent character? Some people would like, say, it's Mr. Blonde. You'd be like, he killed nobody. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, Yeah, he hacked up some guy, didn't kill him. Yeah. He does not have the kill count that any of the other ones do. Very true, yeah. Oh, wow. You and I have killed more people. We've killed the same amount of people in film as he has.
1: Nobody. Yeah. So. But yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Very yeah. good point. What a character, though. Yeah. What a great character.
0: And the reason that he doesn't kill anybody is because as he's about to kill somebody, the rat reveals himself. Uh, look, this is 30 years down the road, so if you're listening to this podcast, and I am thankful that you've decided you to move to this one. Yeah. If you need me to put on a spoiler like for other ones, that. then I don't know what to tell you because you So you should just turn it off real quick because I'm not going to give you a spoiler. We're going into this. But Mr. Orange reveals himself, however... Mr. Orange revealed himself in the very opening scene. Mr. Orange rats out Mr. Pink when Joe asks who didn't pitch in. The first person to speak up is Mr. Orange. Mr. Orange revealed himself early on as the rat. And I'm not going to put this as like a coincidence. I'm going to fully state that I believe that was intentional from Mr. Tarantino. I haven't read or seen anything where he says that, but the man doesn't do things accidentally. There's nothing accidental in his movies. Nothing. There's no way that that slipped by him when doing it. When it came time to, Joe's going to ask a question of who didn't pitch in, and he has this whole speech about why he didn't tip. Who's going to tell on him that he didn't do it? I'm going to give away who the rat is right off the bat. But I'm going to hide it because the minute after this happens, we do this cool walk out to the song, Little Green Bag. I'm going to show him shot and dying, and you're going to feel sorry for him, and you're going to completely forget about what he just did. That's genius. Whatever he did with the other those other movies, that's fucking genius. To basically tell you in the first five, ten minutes of the movie that here's the rat we're going to hear about, he's the rat but I'm going to do something to make you feel sorry for him, and you're not going to want to believe his threat until he ends up blowing fucking Mr. Blonde away, (laughs) like brutally. I remember the first time seeing that being like, oh, shit, we're about to get a guy on fire. And then all of a sudden, I'm bam, 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 like, funny thing is, I thought the cop got the gun. My first time seeing. it I was like, how did he get his fucking hands free and get a gun? And Mr. Wands, like, standing there, how's he getting shot by the cop? You know and then all of a sudden, you pan to Mr. Orange, and I'm like, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> like, here we are thinking, this poor sack
1: of shit's dying and bleeding to death, and he's the guy the whole time. I mean, I know, I know I've seen the film a bunch of times, which is an understatement, but when I re-watched it last night, it's just testament to Tarantino's skills as a storyteller that I was so wrapped up in everything that leads up to the reveal of the rat. I'd just forgotten the whole point of the, of, you know? Like, <laughs> yep. I, I was just so engrossed yep. in, in, in what was unfolding in front of me. I was like, oh, shit. I mean, I know I know who the rat is, but I was just enjo- I was just so like, engrossed in what was unfolding that I completely forgot. That I was that, that that the point of this is to find out who the rat is. You know, the character is just so alive. I mean, I was thinking about my favourite scene, and it turns out that my favourite scene is it's the second Mr Pink shows up at the warehouse. When he comes right? walking in, yeah, he comes yeah.
0: storming through the door.
1: Right. Till until finally, until Mr Blonde shows up. Right.
0: So the whole thing, yeah, so that, the whole talking thing, and then that, then they have their little standoff, their little fucking
1: Yeah, that's that's eighteen minutes long. Yeah. So it's not really a scene because because you get the you get two flashbacks within that scene. So yeah, you, you get, get Mr. White and Pink. Yeah, yeah. So and Mr. Pink to when they escape the heist. Yep. And he shoots. yeah. So good. But that's that whole sequence. The dialogue is just you know no wonder you know yeah tarantino is that whole sequence so it's not really a scene as a sequence because yeah no i know you know yeah to me though it is one scene there's just flashbacks within that scene yeah but that that age is the from the second he bursts through the door to the minute it pulls back to reveal mr blonde is just absolute cinema it's just gold you know yeah, I agree. Every line of dialogue in that sequence from Mr. White, you know, what you're supposed to do is act like a fucking professional and all that. And, then, <laughs> yeah. and you know and the minute and and the minute um that Mr. Pink finds out that Mr White has revealed his first name, yes. he's like, well, fuck that, we're not taking this yep. guy to a hospital. He, we're not taking him to the hospital now.
0: Well, it's such a good scene. You forget that Mr. White doesn't light his fucking cigarette the first time he tries to light it. Like, he doesn't no, even come I, close. No. Like, I don't I, know, but then know he's what? smoking later. I don't even know what that is, but he doesn't even come close to lighting it.
1: Yeah, but enough, the second time I thought he wasn't going to light it then even. I, could, I couldn't remember. <laughs> I know. I was like, well, <laughs> well it, was like, maybe Harry doesn't
0: it? want to smoke. Like, well, Then why is he having <laughs> yeah, a cigarette? Yeah. Like, I was, like what trying to quit.
1: He's just weaning himself off the cigarettes. But that whole sequence to me... It is great. I think that's my favorite scene of the film. But like I say, it's a secret safe it's eighteen minutes to the, I thought Yeah. I thought, oh I know my favorite scene is like Jesus Christ, this is a, <laughs> it's a fucking third of the movie nearly.
0: <laughs> well, they don't reveal for an hour that we find that's Orange. And then, you know, instead of us being able to sit there and wallow in what just happened, we get to see Mr. Orange's backstory, which is it's brilliant. Like it's brilliant. Like we jump away from the whole heist, the whole it's like he gives us a moment to get out of the ratcheted up tension, and now we're following how Mr. you know, Orange is doing the whole thing. And he does another great moment of tension where Mr. Orange is telling that bullshit story, and we're getting the flashback, and first I'm thinking, I'm like, these fucking cops are going to arrest I'm like, these cops aren't fucking real. None of the stuff he's telling me is happening. These cops are not in this fucking bathroom. There's not I've a got that, dog. I've got that written so down. It's amazing. Like, you just sit there.
1: I wrote that down. I was going to say, what I was going to say was, that's funny, because you should- the canoe story is fantastic. You, you're, you're so engrossed by how intense it is. It's not even fucking happening. No.
0: No, yeah. none of it's happening. Yeah. And the funny thing is we no. start off with him barely being able to start it on the top of the rooftop. He's in his house. He can't remember it. He goes to it. Then all of a sudden, he's in the bar telling it. And all of a sudden, he's actually in the bathroom flashing back to why he's in the bar telling it. And the whole time, you're like, motherfucker, none of this is real. None of and that story ge- is real. Yeah, yeah. And That's and the genius, genius of it.
1: Yeah, and and it's also genius how Mister Orange is signing it in front of the cop. Yes, you know, yeah, I love that. Know, just that kind, of, that kind of pull back, and he's just like doing the hand gestures, and he's, he's really into his own story at that
0: point. Well, then Tarantino decides, with along with Sally Menke, who unfortunately is no longer with him; uh, she's passed. But phenomenal editor should have gotten an award. Although the new, I forget the guy's name who's doing it now, has really is seamless. He's done a great job of picking it where Sally left off. Absolutely, but. He's washed his hands. The cops are telling their story, which is funny because that story would have ended that he did shoot him in the face nowadays. But we won't jump into that kind of thing. Yeah. He has no place to set the drugs down on. So he's got to leave it by the wash. He's got to go hit the fucking – the dryer. And he hits and it. And it hit- it's like that jet engine. And it makes <laughs> oh, it even more intense.
1: Like a, yeah. It's like a plane going off. Yeah. Yes. And, that cop, and, that,
0: and that one cop is really – Staring cool. at And the dog's – the do- the to- In ah, slow motion.
1: In so slow motion. Genius. The dog.
0: You're so tense I, that he's going to get busted. You forget that one, he's the fucking cop who's undercover. The story's bullshit. And you're so, yeah, yeah. You're, you as the audience have bought into the commode story. That is yeah, genius acting and genius directing and writing. And
1: that's how good, but that's how good an actor he has to be to pull it off, you know? Yes. So it works on a lot of different levels. Well,
0: yeah. give Tim Roth credit because as he's going through it, he obviously knows the commode story before he starts doing the scenes. But he starts Ooh. off like he doesn't know what the fuck he's saying in the commode stories. Absolutely. At one point, he has to go back. And sometimes, like, motherfucker, I'm trying to learn Lost Boys. You know what I mean? Like, at first, you're like, yeah. this is bullshit. But then when he finally <laughs> hey. gets his nerve down, as he tells the story, he gets better and better to the point where when he's finally in the moment with him, we're completely wrapped in it. we think, oh, shit. It, he was actually in this moment, and even though we should know that he's telling it, he's made it through it. We still yeah. are like, God damn these cops are gonna know. Uh, yeah,
1: uh, great. So Here's good. a question. Here's a question for yeah. you. Yeah. Tim Ross accent. Good or bad, as an American, you know, as an American here. Here's the American. thing
0: I've always said about our accents, and a person who's going to come on my next episode. I've done a thing with I don't know if you know him, uh, Petros Pasilis, who's also a former, a countryman of yours. He does a Nicolas Cage podcast, and we asked him one time about uh, some of the accents from I mean, Americans doing British accents. Right, being that America is so big, and I, uh, this, I don't want this to sound like something like I'm about to go into some God bless America. <laughs> you know, there we go. I, can, I knew that was going to Come eventually. to America. <laughs> you know thing <laughs> but because it's such a big country and we have so many different accents within even our own states and stuff like so want to say it's easier for someone to pull off an american accent as long as you're not trying to pull off you know like a unique area like a boston accent or you're trying to pull a new york like there are certain ones that are very specific that you know as soon as you hear them but right. for the most part and I'm sure I have an accent to you as you do to me, because obviously we live in different countries and yeah. <laughs> you know, but for the most part, Tim is is spotted. I found that a majority of English actors can really pull off an American accent. Yeah. Seen, there, there are Americans who can't pull off Boston accents sometimes. Like, you know what I mean? Like there, it's it's tough. Like there are certain yeah. like yeah, pulling well, off I'm, the pulling off that New Yorker gangster. Oh, I don't know, right? You know, it's as easy to do your dang dang. That's the only old. one that's, that's only what one People can do. pull off. Boston's a little <laughs> tougher. To pull off a South Boston accent, it's tougher. Uh, yeah. Even to pull off like a northern uh, – like Canada slash up in Minnesota, like the Fargo accent, that's tough right. to do. Like, you know, there are – you can definitely pick it apart. But I would yeah. say Tim Roth was very believable. I'll be honest with you. When I saw the movie, I thought Tim Roth was just an American actor. That's – I mean, no, he was really great. good. That's great. Yeah, so. That's great.
1: Well, yeah, no, obviously me knowing he's British, so – to hear an American, you know, from an
0: American perspective, you know. And I'll be completely transparent. I think most Americans don't know their. F- we know when it's a foreign accent, we couldn't fucking tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we fucking <laughs> couldn't tell you what part of the country some of us are from, anyways. So you know, we all have yeah. little dialects. You can you can hear it. Like my brother's from here in New York. He now lives down in Atlanta, and he doesn't have the Southern drawl. But I've noticed as he's lived there for about 15 years now, he'll let his vowels hang a little longer. Like he doesn't say coke, he'll say coke or coach. Like the the o is like o, you know, like it's right, a weird. Right. But he's yeah. from here, so it's just, you, I can pick it up. Like he doesn't have a lot of it, but he's picked it up from his wife and just being down there. Eventually, you pick it up. You know what oh, I mean? I so Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's I, little things. Yeah. I was first made aware of Tim Roth when I was at school. When I was at high school, one of my teachers it it showed films in class, and it showed he showed a film called Made in Britain, which is about a skinhead kid. Hmm. Yeah, just a troubled teen, basically. And his sort of trials and tribulations. And that Tim Roth was the lead in that. It was very controversial, with a lot of foul language and sort of violence in the film. To be shown at high school, you know, <laughs> you're like know, twelve, you know, twelve years old, you know. Your you teacher was clearly day. didn't have anything
0: planned for the day and was trying to be the cool teacher.
1: Well, funnily enough, he was the coolest guy on the planet. His name was Mr. Dickinson, and he was um Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. He was Bruce Dickinson's uncle.
0: No shit. That well, that's pretty fucking cool.
1: He used to have Iron Maiden posters up in his classroom, yeah? He was the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> and, and he was a French teacher, right? And he would give every... When it was time to give out the annual reports, how well students were doing, he'd give everyone an A. I mean, he, what's more metal than that? And he would say, he would say, look, you know, I'm going well off it's on a tangent here, But he would basically say, um, you know, well, I want you to come to my class, and I don't want you to get in trouble with your parents. So if I give you an A, everyone's happy. Coolest guy in the world. But, yeah, he showed us made in Britain, and that's how I became where Tim Roth. So when Reservoir Dogs was coming out, you know, we saw Tim Tim Roth, you know. That's who I knew in the film. I didn't know Michael Madsen. I didn't know Steve Buscemi. You know, unless you were
0: a fan of old cinema, like with Lawrence Tierney and then –
1: Yeah, I've only seen one Lawrence Tierney.
0: And Harvey Keitel would be really the two. Madsen was brand new to all of us. Steve Buscemi was completely new. Like, they really were new guys. Like So when Tim Roth... So those three guys were kind of made from this. Chris Penn had a bit of a following because everyone knew he was Sean Penn's brother and we had seen other things.
1: He's he's great in the film as
0: well. Oh, he's amazing in the film. He's phenomenal. But everyone else is is. kind of, like, brand new. Like, Stephen Wright was more well-known than those three actors I just named. Buscemi, (laughs) Matt, you know, Matt, and and the rest because, you know, he was a comedian. So... You know, with Tim Roth and Steve and, you know, you know the big guys, the big guns, Michael Madsen. And then again, really, and I, this means no disrespect to Michael Madsen because I love him in everything Tarantino does that he's in. He hasn't been in a whole lot of other things where his, you know, he's been as good as when he's in a Tarantino movie. Nah. I feel the same huh. about um, Jason Statham. When Jason Statham is working with Guy Ritchie, Jason Statham is one of the finest actors on the planet because Guy Ritchie gets so much out of him. Right. When he works with everyone else, it's just Jason Statham. It's like Jean-Claude Van Damme started films like, oh, it's Jean-Claude Van Damme. It's like, oh, it's Jason Statham. He's in this movie. He's in this movie. But when he's working with Guy Ritchie, you go, okay. Even though his last one, he was a little bit more.
1: Yeah, they got that director, actor shorthand.
0: Exactly. And I think Madsen and Tarantino, he gets the best out of them. Like he gets so much out of them. Like he's Mr. Blonde and he's Bud. Can you be any more separated (laughs) from two characters than that? Yeah, you know what I mean. They're both killers, but one is like one's working at a titty bar. He's down in this what's in a trailer oh, in the middle man. of nowhere, Texas, and the other guy's a psycho. Like it's just like they're two completely different characters, but he fucking nails each performance. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's not a not bad. I mean, I saw I did see Lawrence Tierney in a, in an old film noir called I think it The Hitchhiker or something. He's a real mean, menacing guy in that. But yeah, that was I think later, that's who he is, anyways. Well, I th- yeah, I think I saw that later, though. And I'm really, really struggling to think about Kaitel. Like, whether I'd seen him. And I recognise him from Taxi Driver, but I don't think I'd seen him in a whole lot else. Because he's kind of my- mainstream. He? He's in like yeah, this, and yeah he was doing. He was things. in he Rise, was, *Rise and Sun* with Sean Connery and stuff. Like I
0: that. think he was kind of in the in a shadow a of Pacino and De Niro. Like he was one of Scorsese's guys, but he like in Pesci, but he he wasn't on their level. He would pick up some of the bit parts. Like he made *The Irishman*, but he wasn't. He was hardly in it. You know what I mean? Like so, he's always been in those films. But when you're going up against a De Niro and a Pesci, it's hard for you to step to the forefront because those guys were on the top of their games early on. Yeah. But I do believe this, and then obviously his turn as Winston Wolfe. In Pulp Fiction, yeah. really started to really, oh. bring oh, him a yeah, career through I mean, the '90s.
1: Yeah, I don't think it helped that he got fired from Apocalypse Now. You know, no, I think but, that, but that...
0: rightfully so
1: because the right oh, person yeah. made it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But had that worked out, I think he would have, you know, gone up the, gone the same way as. De Niro. Yeah,
0: you might be right. You might be right. He, well, he yeah. wouldn't have been, in, you know what, funny thing is, Reservoir Dogs would never have been made, if we really think about it. Well, His trajectory was that way, Reservoir Dogs never gets made. We, we don't have this podcast, I'm not talking to you right now.
1: Absolutely, I should shut the fuck up. So I'll thank work, you, I'll Mr. Coppola, for
0: firing him in the apocalypse yeah. now.
1: Thanks, yeah. Oh, Jesus, yeah, good point. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, speaking of firing, there's a Mexican standoff, which is a true Tarantino trope, and it's a great one. And it is a moment of, the best way I've always described it is it's as if you are at a family dinner and all of a sudden, especially here in America, all of a sudden three of your family members are armed and they're having an argument and they're pointing guns at each other to settle this argument and it's only going to end with violence. (laughs) You know, it's a truly American pastime, especially since we just celebrated Thanksgiving over here. So there's probably a chance that somewhere in one of the rural parts of our country, people shot each other in a Mexican standoff over a nice turkey dinner, the American way. Nice. Tradition. Yes, it is. If you watch the movie, unfortunately, Nice Guy Eddie's squibs go off too soon. Because he kind of gets shot a little early by a magic bullet from Mr. White. And what a great tense moment. And the, the dialogue back and forth between like Nice Guy Eddie and Mr. White telling Joe, don't you make me do this. And he's like, I, I will put fucking bullets in your heart when, this, when Nice Guy oh, Eddie just comes back and forth. Like, it's so fantastic. And it's shot so well when it's, they finally do get the, the, the shots off.
1: But, yeah, because it's so, it's so intense and it's so, such a surprising moment. Yeah, because you're not expecting everyone to be dead at the end. You know? No, no. So, so it's chaotic, it's surprising, and it really is like a – it's one of those what-the-fuck moments that didn't used to happen at that time in cinema. Yeah? You know, that it would have been tied 100%. up in a bow. It would have been tied up in a bow before that. And suddenly, yeah. you're like – you know, everyone's on the fucking floor and Mr. Pink crawls out, you know.
0: If you watch the move, the scene from when it starts, you can watch him, like, he goes, guys, we don't want this, and you see him slowly slide and go underneath that ramp. He's like, oh, I don't want nothing to do with this.
1: Ultimately, he's the he's the right guy. <laughs> and then Joe, you think that maybe
0: what Joe said earlier about him being his color, you might be like, well, he may have been on a point there. <laughs>
1: he may have hit yeah. the nail right on the head for him. Yeah, but that was such a what the fuck moment that I... That, things like that at, 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 in cinema at that time, they just didn't happen like that, you know? So that was just one of those, that, that was at that side that didn't make audiences cheer. It fucking silenced audiences. audience. It was like, yes, what the fuck? Well, because who are you
0: rooting for? Like, that's the other thing, is who are we rooting for in this film? You know what I mean? Are we, do we want Joe Cabot to get caught, or are we on the bad guy side? If we're on the bad guy side, then we want Joe Cabin and Nice Guy Eddie, because they're right, this guy's the piece of shit, and Mr. White's blind as fuck. Or did we somehow fall in love with Mr. White and Mr. Orange because they were shown to us helping each other because the man bled, almost bled out? You know what I mean? Like, it's so many confused. Like, who are you supposed to root for in this moment?
1: Yeah, I've always rooted for Mr. White, but... You know, he's very flawed, yeah, because he's, he's the one who makes the mistake. It, but the film really hangs on his flaws, yeah? Yes. Because, by, because it's all about, really, he, he's built a father-son relationship with Mr. Yes. Orange, yeah, which you see from the get-go, right? Because when they're in the cafe at the beginning, when he takes the book off Joe, yes. he, looks, he looks over at Mr. Orange and winks at him. Yeah. It's a very father son thing, yeah.
0: Well, if you even jump back in the actual timeline, when they're in that bar telling the commode story, he's enjoying the story. Like, he, he loves his story. Like he loves he's brought in. Yeah, yeah, and clearly, that you're there with Nice Guy Eddie, Joe Cabot, and Mr. White. So, Mr. White's clearly the senior guy in this. He's like, you know, the captain of this team that they're putting together. And if Mr. White yeah. can see working with it, you know? So, yeah, Mr. White, which is yeah. the irony of that, is his whole speech yeah. with Steve yeah. Michemi yeah. about yeah, being so- a fucking professional. He clearly isn't. And that whole job about he, you know, caught there was someone in another job they had to kill because I would believe that one, Mr. White's the one who killed him, and number two, he's the reason that the cop got in as far as he did the last time too. Like it's exactly. all—it's all there for
1: us. Yeah, but again, like you know, when when at the at the beginning, well, early in the film, when Mr. White and Mr. Orange are in the car, you know, and Mr. Orange is bleeding out, there's a very, there's a very there's a connection yeah, between those two, you know, and, and when when he's lying on the floor in the warehouse and. Mr. White says, you know, go ahead and be scared. You've been brave enough for one day. It's a very, there is, yes. there's a serious father-son vibe going there. Well, you know
0: what I also found is, because I've also watched Pulp Fiction over Thanksgiving as well, and having watched the two, I really feel like the moments of Mr. Orange and Mr. White when he was writing it led to the story of the Gold Watch, where another man takes on the certain responsibility of another man when you're in a certain situation. Yeah. There's very much of the Gold Watch situation, almost even more personified in the Mr. Orange, Mr. White interactions than even so much so than when we get to... Marcellus and Butch, he, even though that's an insane thing that happens, <laughs> it feels like, you know, uh, some of the genesis of that came from his character writing of Orange and White and him taking on and him being, you know, he felt it was his fault that he got shot. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, right. like, he's doing things, he's feeling things for other members of a team he shouldn't. That's the reason they don't have names. Yeah. You know what I mean? He yeah. should be like, fuck Mr. Orange. He's fucked. Good luck to you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like,
1: Face.
0: what they should have done is they should have shot him right then and there. And got the and fuck out of that. yes, yes,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, basically, like I say, father and son, but oh, I mean, it takes them under his wing, you know, whether it's not whether it's father Agreed. and son or not, it it does take him under his and that is where the problems start. Because, like you said, like you just pointed out, you know, if Mr. Orange didn't know if he hadn't built that bond with Mr. Orange, and Mr. Orange was laying there bleeding, I'd have to shoot the fucking guy.
0: Mr. Orange doesn't get any information on them, they don't have any ins. There's a, I mean, at the end of the day. And there's, if you see the ex- actual scenes, you can kind of hear that this is what they were going to do anyways. At the end of the day, they didn't give a shit about any of the other colors. They wanted Joe Cabot, which is why they had to wait for him to come into the warehouse. In, in one of the extra scenes, Mr. Orange is like like, why do we have to fuck, like, you're leaving me there naked. Why the fuck am I, do we have to wait in this warehouse for him to show up? And he's like, we want to get Cabot right handed That's what they wanted. So Mr. White was going to be the guy that they were going to use to turn on Joe if, You know, when they got arrested. He was going to be the guy they were going to lean on to turn state's evidence on Joe Cabot. That's who they were going to use. And it probably would have worked. It would have worked. He fucking shoots him, so it definitely would have worked. He has no problem shooting him in the warehouse. He has no problem sitting on a stand and fucking ratting him out. Like, I have no doubt in my mind he would have ratted
1: him out. That moment at the end, you know, when he's. Gritting his teeth, and he's like, "Oh fuck
0: this!" I oh, know if I shoot. He's him. upset. He's he's upset that he he got duped probably again, and he's upset because he really did like Mister Orange. And so some people say he didn't shoot him first. Like the no, he shoots him. He like shoots there's this him. whole big Reddit thing about oh he didn't shoot him. No, he fucking shoots him.
1: No, the body the body, the body language totally yeah. suggests that. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. yeah. They're,
0: they're because difficult. as soon as he shoots, him, then the cops fire at him and take him out. They're not opening yeah. fire on. On Mr. Orange. He's one of theirs. They're not going to shoot at him until Mr. No, exactly. White. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Now, before we wrap it up, we got to talk about Mr. Pink's fate. Now, I know a concrete answer. You may too, uh-huh. but I'm going to just ask you, do you think Mr. Pink was arrested or dead?
1: I'm going to say he got away, right? Well, he goes outside. He gets
0: out of the – he goes out to the building, and if you listen to the audio – so I guess we're going to – I'll let you answer first, and then listen. I'll tell you what I've heard, and what, what I've been able to listen to.
1: He got outside. Yep, had a shootout with the cops. Yep, ended up in Mexico, snorting okay. snorting coke out of a hooker's ass. Okay, and and got got fucking killed anyway. So he's all
0: right. So that's he's dead. He's dead <laughs>
1: regardless because of the kind of weaselly little shit he is.
0: But... He's pro- oh, you're probably right. He's probably now thirty years in the future. He's dead most likely. Yeah. But... However, if you listen carefully to the audio, can you turn it up or get some headphones because that way you don't scare your neighbors? You can hear him go outside. You can hear him try to start the car. The car does not start. He does get into it with the cops. There is some shooting, but they're yelling at him. Eventually, he runs out of bullets. The cops don't hit him. He doesn't hit them. The cops are yelling at him. He eventually surrenders, and then once he surrenders, that's when you hear them kick the door open and come arrest. Now, a lot of people have confused the kicking the door open of them coming in as him being shot outside. Ah. But if you listen carefully, Mr. Pink was arrested. However, like you said... He probably didn't last long in jail. No, he, whatever
1: yeah. happened, he yeah. probably he killed
0: got, a he... cop on in his escape at least one. He's robbed you. Like he's and he's the one who's got the fucking jewels in his hands. He's going to prison for a long time. And now that Joe Cabot and his son are dead, there's no one to roll over on. So everything's getting pinned on Mr. Pink. He's going away for a very long fucking time.
1: Yeah. Well ultimately, yeah. Things don't ultimately things don't end well for Pink. But when that happens, I don't know.
0: Um, yeah. But everyone else is dead. Everybody else is dead. Uh, There's no one Pink is the only one who walks away from the original people at the opening scene. Everyone else dies. Yeah. Four killed by cops and the rest are either killed by each other or other events. So
1: plus they have the diamonds, so Yeah. Oh yeah, oh he he's fucked. He's fucked. Like he like at the
0: end of the day, they wanted Joe Cabot. When they by the time they kick the door open, Cabot's already dead. His son's already dead. They can't get anything from them. The only other guy they might have been able to do is blonde. He's right in the doorway. He's fucking dead. So that's they have to shoot white because he kills Orange. So they're getting no information. The only guy left is pink. He's got all the diamonds. And someone's got to pay for this. So it's gonna be him. (laughs) If I know LA cops, they're turning him into some nefarious gangster (laughs) (laughs) that he's not, and he's gonna get the fucking jail cell thrown at him.
1: Yeah, there you go. That's it. Let's ask our
0: guest some fucking questions. Now before I let my special guest Steve go about his day since he's five hours ahead of me, is eight o'clock his time on a Sunday. I have a few more questions, a little wrap up questions. These are more okay. about this movie. What is your favorite song from the Reservoir Dogs
1: soundtrack? I hate to be obvious, but it is um a little green bag.
0: Oh, excellent. Excellent.
1: Just that bass line, yeah. Just that boom. Well and yeah, becomes... the way that, yeah. that
0: opens the whole I I've had I, there's a thing I probably put on my uh, a poll of uh, what's the better opening song that or Miserable, and I think it's Little Green Bag. I think it's my favorite opening to any Tarantino movie as far as opening songs they come in with.
1: Yeah, Misery is like got, but actually sounds like a theme song. Yeah, he oh no, it, absolutely, you know. But he turns Little Green Bag into a theme song somehow.
0: Yes, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, but that I, I, yeah. And I the slow long motion and,
0: walk I, to the cars. Yeah. with them talking. It's just so good,
1: oh, uh, you know, and it just goes to Harvey Koltel's face with the sunglasses yeah. and the, oh, uh, it's just yeah, you know. Who
0: was your favorite character from the film?
1: Again, flawed maybe, Mister White. We like we said earlier, his flaws are pretty much the, the dilemma of the, the dilemma of the film, you know. Hundred uh, percent, yeah. Of, yeah, because it's the Mister Orange situation, you know, where it's like, you know, well, if Mister Orange didn't know my name, or where I was from, we could drop him to a hospital and get the fuck yeah. out. He makes the mistake, ultimately, of thinking Mr. Ronge is his friend. Yeah. You know? And like Al Pacino says in Colle as well, there's no friends in this shit business, you know.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So, you know, <laughs> however flawed, he was my guy, totally in Reservoir Dogs. Mr. White. Every time
0: Well I already know What your favorite scene is That's Mr. Pink's arrival That lasts at least Two thirds yeah. of the movie I'm guilty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely <That's> <laughs> What's your favorite line Of dialogue from the film
1: Again Right okay So It's a lot I'll read it to you Okay Please do I had to write this down Because obviously It's a Tarantino movie That's not going to be a sentence <laughs> No it's a, whole, it's a whole monologue In itself That's <laughs> what he says Look The managers no better Than to fuck around So if you you get one that gives you stag, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy, so you've got to break that son of a bitch into If you want to know something he won't tell you, carve one of his fingers, the little one, then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll try to wear his lady's underwear. That is my
0: favorite line It's fantastic. Well, that is great because I said, what's your favorite monologue? And I had three monologues written down. Mr. Brown's Like a Virgin Explanation, Mr. Pink's I Don't Tip, or Mr. White's Let's Get a Taco. And I know what yours is. It's Mr. <laughs> <Yeah>. it's Mr. <laughs> yeah. White's Mr. White's go. Let's, go. Let's Get a Taco. Yeah. So what is your favorite character? All right. So for my answers, uh, my favorite song is uh, Steeler's Wheel. It's the Stuck in the Middle with You. It's... Close second is Little Greenback. There too, but right. it's just because of how much when I hear them, Steelers Wheel because I hear that more often too, right? So that's on the radio a lot more, and I think it gets a lot more radio play because of this movie. Like when I hear it, like on the, over here in America, we have Sirius XM. I don't know if you have it in the UK, but we, when I see they'll play like um, that on like the uh, seven on seventies. I 70s. know,
1: I know. Yeah, and yeah. I'll hear.
0: I'm like, oh, here it is. That, that that's great. So that's my favorite. My favorite character is Mr. Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Always has been. It's just something about him. He's He just captures. like his, He's only on screen for a very little minute of time, but he's very, very poignant and, uh, and nefarious the entire time. Uh, favorite scene is Mr. Blonde's torture scene. To me, that's where Tarantino suddenly said, hey, you're going to start paying attention to me from now on. This scene I've just written and put for you, you will never forget. Favorite line was, uh, are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? When Mr. Blonde says that, bite? I thought I was like, that is some of the coldest, toughest shit to say ever to somebody. I was like, God. I was I was like a teenager I'm like, holy shit, man, that's that's a great line. You know, when you hear someone, someone just running their fucking mouth, you just go. You're going to bark all day Little or You're going to fucking bite That's such a good Fucking line
1: No argument from me And
0: then I Went back and forth With which one I liked as far as Monologue But I think it's The Like a Virgin When he comes out Dick 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 How many dicks that A lot Like <laughs> I just love the whole It's just I, I've I'd never heard At that time Anyone come out And talk about a song Like no one's ever You know If I ever talk about a song And somebody's like How much I like the song I've never tried to Interpret a song before Like him interpreting I'm like I'll never do it as good Just as Mr. Brown just did Like he comes out and just interprets what he thinks like a virgin is about it's fantastic it's just like what yeah. the fuck
1: yeah well yeah that whole the whole introduction the whole yeah the whole dynasty is
0: yes. just fantastic
1: it's endless, quotable you know <laughs> it's brilliant stuff
0: And that's a wrap on the first episode. I would like to thank my special guest, Steve Smith, from the Way Past Cool Podcast for joining me today. I had a blast discussing this film, amongst other things, Tarantino with him. Now, you can find his podcast on Mixcloud. Just type in Way Past Cool Podcast. And be sure to follow him on Instagram at IxNayRay, that's I-X-N-A-Y-R-A-Y, or on his Facebook page at The Way Past School Podcast. Now you can also become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on the Church's Facebook page at Church of Tarantino, or on Instagram at Church of Tarantino Podcast. And be sure to join me again in two weeks as my good friend, Matt LaPlante, will join me for our first Tarantino Bible study. We will be sitting down to dissect and discuss Mr. Blonde's Torture from Reservoir dogs. So until then may Tarantino be with you always.
1: This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.